This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. Dr. Michael Fulilove is the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute and advisor to Prime Minister Paul Keating, Rhodes Scholar and renowned foreign affairs expert. Dr. Fulilove is a widely published author and a much sought after global commentator. I caught up with Michael for a chinwag about how Australia should interact with the rising China under Xi Jinping, the madness of US politics and what a second Trump term might look like, how open systems of government still have the upper hand globally, why the world might be one elected leader away from a new sense of calm, and why, despite everything, Michael remains an unabashed optimist about the future. It's a really wide-ranging and fun chat, and uh, we had quite a lot of fun doing it. Uh, big apologies in advance to the Deep State. we get a big shout-out throughout the episode. And as ever, if you are enjoying the show, please be sure to rate, review, and share. The more you do it, the more it helps the show build our audience and really helps us game our way up the algorithm. So please be sure to share and enjoy the episode. Michael, welcome to Diplomates. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's a pleasure's all mine and our and our listeners. Now, so many places to start, obviously, but you know, you're a noted internationalist and it's probably a tough time to be an internationalist yeah. with um, global politics being as they are. Now, knowing there's so many reasons to be pessimistic. We yes. talk a lot about being pessimistic. Would you <clears throat> consider yourself a pessimist or an optimist about the future of uh, foreign policy and, and the world more generally? I'm an optimist by instinct and by nature. I think there's lots of reasons to feel down at the moment because you've got uh, a leader of the free world who doesn't believe in the free world and doesn't want to leave it. You have a West that is stepping back from its traditional role. You have non-democracies up on their hind legs. You have an international organisation in the UN that's sort of unable to solve the global problems that we task it with solving. So there are a confluence of factors that make one pessimistic. But um, as against that, you know, never underestimate the the genius of um, humanity to get its act together and solve problems when they come into focus. And also never forget, never underestimate the role of individuals because... um, I think structures matter, structural reason, you know, the world changes for for vast impersonal reasons, but also because of individual decisions that individual leaders make. Um, If Donald Trump, for example, I'm sure we'll come to him later, if Donald Trump is not re-elected president, if a Democrat of of any stripe really is a re-elected president, you know, I think that would be a burst of adrenaline for the international system. I think a lot of the world would say, wow, maybe we're getting back on track. Maybe there'd be more impetus to solve some of these bigger global problems. Um, Similarly, you know, if we go to the UK, uh, I don't think Brexit would have happened. You can't explain Brexit without the role of one or two individuals, David Cameron and Boris Johnson. If Hillary Clinton had won the election four years ago rather than than Donald Trump, then we'd probably be living in a different world. So we are at a, the, the, the sort of pendulum is swinging in a bad way at the moment, but, but I always believe the pendulum will come back. And so do you think, though, this, this period that we've had, this 30-year period that people seem to want to hark back to around the, you know, the liberal world order, I mean, is that an anomaly, though? Or is this, are we just going back to the way things always have been, which is you know, big, big power politics and, and, and big geostrategic rivalry rather than the world harmoniously operated by one hyperpower? Um, I think that 
it's all to be played for. We don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's obvious that power politics is rushing back. And um, if America is considering America first, then it's natural for other countries to do that. But I, I do think that the benefits that were provided by the liberal international order that existed came into being sort of after the Second World War were incredible in terms of economic growth. And, um, uh, you know, there, there, there were so many wonderful things that were achieved in that period that um, I'm, I'm not ready to write it off and say, no, we're back at, you know, we're, the gar- we're out of the garden, we're back in the jungle. Uh, I think we can get back to the garden. It's all to be played for, but there are a few big decision points coming up, and one of them is the US election. I mean, I think if Donald Trump is re-elected, I think it, it becomes much harder to maintain that garden. You know, suddenly the world will adapt to that. They will start to say the United States, which is in the cockpit of the world order, has really changed. It's a different country from what we thought it was, and that will have all sorts of flow-on effects. Well, I mean, let's talk about U.S. politics. I mean, politics has gone a little bit mad in the United States. You've yeah. had the Iowa um, result, non-result. We've had yeah. the president recently uh, acquitted by the yeah. Senate, the Republican Senate, on a largely a partisan basis, apart from Mitt Romney. I mean, what do we make of the madness of U.S. politics leaving aside global politics? And how does that flow into... Yeah, because yeah, you've painted the positive picture. Yeah. But let's talk about the negative picture. Briefly. It's very hard for an Americophile like me. I mean, bear in mind that I, I spent a lot of my life reading about um, the US, the US politics and the US role in the world. I wrote a book on Franklin Roosevelt, who was sort of who helped to establish the international order that we see crumbling in front of us. So for me to go through even just the last week or two, the incredible incompetence of the the Democrats in Iowa. The, um, the, the sort of partisan uh, acquittal of, of the president really after really atrocious behaviour in relation to Ukraine. And then the State of the Union, the, the garishness, the grotesque circus. Um, it's almost like, a, it's almost like a, an Oprah Winfrey TV special. Yeah. And, and, I don't, and I don't acquit the other side either. I mean, I thought Pelosi mm-hmm. tearing up the speech. The whole thing, it feels like the country's coming apart at the seams, doesn't it? So, look, um, you know, voters of New Hampshire, we look to you to restore some order. And so, you know, you, you've, you're an avowed Americanist. And yep. I mean, everyone knows that. Um, how does the world operate without its traditional leader? Can it operate without its traditional leader? It's hard and it's, it's a challenge that we have been trying to come to terms with since really since the second half of the Bush administration, I would say. I think in the first administration of, of George W. Bush, the first term, they overreached. Um, and then in the second term, they started to step back. Obama, for all his qualities, um, had a much more limited view of America's role in the world. And he hoped that as America did less, other countries would do more. You remember that was the sort of the the hope that in the Middle East that the Europeans and so on would step up as, as, the, as Americans tried to lead from behind. And what actually happened was that as America did less, everyone else did less too. So this is the problem. It's, it's hard. I mean, I think middle powers like Australia should do more with other middle powers. I think we should, we should, tr- we should do our best to hold the system together until the fever passes in Washington. But it's hard because... Middle powers don't make 
the international system. Great powers, superpowers make the international system. The international system tends to acquire some of the features of the most important powers. So I don't know the answer to your question, Misha. We're living through an experiment. Um, I think all of us have to do what we can to hold the system together and hope that America returns to, to some form of normalcy. So, I mean, you paint, I mean, and you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, history is governed by events, and there are these pivot points, um, you know, Brexit, which mm-hmm. will come to the 2016 election, is perhaps one of the most mm-hmm. classic in contemporary politics. But let's fast, and, and you've painted a rosy picture potentially of what a, what a, a democratic mm-hmm. uh, uh, presidency could do for America, but the global mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, mood, mm-hmm. so to speak. But let's fast forward, you know, to. A, a second term of a Trump presidency. It strikes me that much of Trump's worst instincts have been largely contained, mm, contained mm. by the institutions. Mm. They, they may be almost struggling to the point now where he's busting out against them. You know, can, can the institutions survive a second term of Trump? Mm. It's the big question. And having just come back from the United States, uh, I mean, it feels like we're probably more likely than not to have to grapple with that question. Um, Uh, Look, the glass half full view says that, as you say, the institutions have more or less held together, the free press, um, the the US civil service to some extent, the deep state. Yeah, the national security system. Thank God for the deep state. Um, (laughs) um, I'm going to end up with a lot of atmies from uh, some uh, some (laughs) interesting people on Twitter, but anyway. Bring bring it on. on. (laughs) Um, So that's the positive view. And of course... I mean, I've said to my American friends, don't forget that sort of halfway through a second term, a president tends to enter the lame duck phase and and events start to sort of move on. And often the most important changes that a president brings in happen in the first term. So that's a glass half full. The glass half empty version says that Trump, we will have Trump unleashed. The, The deep state will wither away. It, it will be impossible to... We've already seen him um, come back at issues again and again, like free trade and alliances and other things, and this time he will overcome the resistance. Um, I suppose we also have to think, even if he limits himself to two terms, and you'd have to say, based on everything you see about him, he would... I don't know why he would think the constitutional limitation should apply to him. Mm. What happens after Trump? Does the, does the Make America Great Again movement survive Trump? Does someone else called Trump run for president um, in four years' time? Mm. What does that do to the Democratic Party? I mean, this is the fear that, that if, you can re- if, if you have two terms of Mr. Trump, does that really knock the country off course? Um, and does it start to sort of spiral away like um, Darth Vader's uh, TIE fighter. Well, he goes, <laughs> he, he goes from being an anomaly to yeah. systemic yeah. Uh, the, the new force. Normal. That's right. And yeah. so that, I think, is an interesting question to pose. Now, well, we could probably talk about Trump all day and we will return to, to US politics in a global context. Um, jumping across the pond, as it were, to, to, to the UK, Brexit, you know, it's now done, um, you know, one of the, the things that people feared yeah. was le- you know, that the UK leaving Europe would be the first of a domino effect. You know, yes. The next would come France, after that might come Germany. 
you know, do you think there's more to come in Europe and, and what's what's the net impact of Brexit on Britain, but also on the European Union, which yeah. is kind of critical to the sort yeah. of the, the liberal world order? It's a sleeping giant in many ways. But I think the good news is that Brexit has been such a shamble <laughs> that no one in Europe wants to follow the Brits. And so you, you remember after the Brexit vote, people were talking about Frexit and Grexit and Spexit and all the rest of it. But now I don't think, I think everyone looks at that and says, no, we don't want that. Now, one, one possible wrinkle on that is Scotland, where suddenly you've got, uh, you know, a country that is, you've got a country in a nation in Scotland that is in a very different place on Europe and many other issues from England. So that's a caveat. Um, so I don't think you'll see, I don't think Brexit will break up Europe, but I think what Brexit will do is, first of all, it will make Britain um, poorer and more distracted um, than it would otherwise have been. And as you say, we rely on, we've historically relied on Britain to be one of the tent poles of the, the international order, the most internationally focused um, European country, the one with the greatest, uh, with um, a big economy, an outward looking economy, trade dependent, um, strong military and intelligence services. And it has been blown off course. It's been heavily distracted for five years and it will continue to be that way. I'm not a total um, um, uh, bear when it comes to Britain's future. I think Britain's got a great future, but I think it's going to be less than what it would have been if it had stayed in Europe. And to come to the other bit of your question, I think Brexit will make the EU smaller by definition, weaker, poorer, um, less liberal, more statist, um, less pro-American, um, less willing to stand up to Russia. Mm. So I think the net effect of all this is to benefit um, enemies of the West, adversaries of the West um, in Kremlin, in the Kremlin or, or Zhongnanhai and elsewhere. Mm. And so do you think a Scottish independence vote is likely? I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the Scots voted to stay perhaps mm. principally because they want to stay in the EU and then mm. their friends down south have now taken them out of the EU. It's an interesting problem um, politically. I hope it doesn't. Look, I hope it doesn't because although, you know, I, I just think Scotland is such a, is so, adds so much to the United Kingdom that, that um, you know, uh, my people are from Ireland and, and, and England, not from Scotland, but I just think it would... It would be a shame for Britain as, 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 as a country, but also, again, it would further distract. It would be more weight, more lead in the saddles for Britain. And really, um, someone like me wants a Britain that, is, that gets over this, that gets, does get Brexit done and gets over Brexit and comes back to playing a confident, outward-looking role in the world. We need that. And... Another extended debate about Scotland and the, impo the impoverishment of, of the country that would come from Scotland exiting can only be bad news for that. And so you, you mentioned uh, uh, the Kremlin and, and Russia, and clearly uh, they had a hand in Brexit and yep. they had a hand in, um, in the 2016 election famously, and there's talk that they might have a hand in the 2020 election. But I want to talk a little bit about open and closed systems because mm -hmm. this seems to be the big thing, the big trend we're heading towards is mm -hmm. that, you know, for a long time we had a globalization led by the United States and more democracy and there's going to be integration, et cetera. And what we now have is two worlds, one that's characterized by a liberal mm. openness mm. of information, of people of exchange and, and an increasing closed, mm. essentially autocratic systems. Mm. 
traditional theory has been, you know, the open systems would win, you know, uh, Bill Clinton nailing Jello to a wall, you know, good luck with that if you want to control the internet. Of course, it appears to be the case that that the the closed systems are winning um, and using the openness against them. Why do you think that is the case and, and what's the way for for democracies to, to you know, guard against that without losing their, you know, closing themselves? Mm. Well, I think in the end, open systems work better. Mm. And um, I, I think to return to the metaphor of the pendulum, the last 12 months or 24 months, we've gone through this period of the strong men where we, we're worried by the rise of the strong men. But if you look at how countries like Russia and China are doing now, would you say that closed systems are working if, when you look at Russia's economy, the fact that it's in a demographic death spiral. Um, I mean, Russia has an economy not much larger than Australia's. Now, Mr. Putin plays a poor hand well, and he invests heavily in, in, um, in his military, in his ability to cause problems and cause mayhem elsewhere. But in terms of delivering economic growth and happiness and good health to the Russian people, that system is a failure. If you look at China, it's a different story, I think. China, you have to acknowledge the success of the Chinese system um, in the last few decades as it opened up. But if you look at coronavirus and you look at the reporting now about how Chinese bureaucracy has you know, had, uh, refused to come clean quickly, um, it, you can see that that system doesn't, that closed system to come to answer your question, doesn't respond well to these shocks. An open system that is open to science and open to transparency um, will work better in the long run. So I, I believe in our system and, and I sometimes I want to shake people in the West up and shake them out of their torpor and say, you know, don't underestimate the system that our, our fathers and mothers fought for and our system is better than their system and I'll tell you what if we could elect a couple of leaders in big western countries that would change the psychology you know to come back to the structural versus individual don't forget don't underestimate that the fact that that Mr Trump is the president of the United States the fact that Merkel who was so impressive for a long time is kind of fading out of the picture there's not that many big Western leaders that you can look to and say that they're really impressive. Whereas, mm. as I said, say Putin seems to play a well at weekend well. Xi Jinping is obviously an historic, you know, sort of a world historic figure. So I, I like, I admire Macron in many ways. And I think if we could get a couple of other Western leaders out there, that might change the psychology a little it's bit. It's interesting though, isn't it? I mean, how much do you think the crisis of confidence within the West, not just in the leadership, but almost in the system itself, you look at, um, yeah. Polling, which says younger people yeah. have more concerns, or they don't think democracy is the best system, yeah. you know, and or um, just generally that the West doesn't seem to have the swagger it once did, maybe yeah. in the Cold War days, where yes. it literally believed in the system and, and self-evidently yes. projected it in that way. I mean, do you think there's there's something to that? Yes. I mean, so I mean, have- I do. I think that that the you know what's happened is first of all the forever wars. Um, that disenfranchised a whole generation of people around the West who didn't believe in those wars and also who were not only thought the wars were wrong, but then watched as the wars were not won. Um, And their systems seemed unable in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere 
to win those wars. Um, and then the global financial crisis, I think, was the second blow of the hammer and the effects, the ongoing effects that that's had, inequality. I think, I think these are the problems um, that these have shaken our faith um, in the system. Now, it's interesting when you mention that polling, um, the Lowy Institute polling for a number of years has found those concerning results among younger Australians that they don't necessarily believe that democracy is the best system. But what's interesting is that we dove deeper a couple of years ago and did qualitative polling as well to try to work out why they, why we were getting those quite shocking results. And, and young, younger Australians didn't say that they necessarily believe that authoritarian government is better. It was more to do with disenfranchise, um, with disillusionment about how Australian democracy is working. So concerns that the parties were not um, not different from each other, or that politicians were only in it for themselves, or that the system seemed to be broken. So I think there's a grain of there, there's a grain of hope there. I don't think young Australians want an authoritarian system, but they want our system to work better, and. So do I. I would like to have politics in Australia and around the world that is solving the problems rather than um, rather than being concerned with their own position in the hierarchy. Now, now you've spoken a couple of times about inspiring leaders. Are there any leaders that you can see on the horizon that you think that uh, man or woman is someone to get us to this place? Well, I mentioned Macron. I do. I, I love the audacity of Macron. I love seeing... Starting a party from nowhere and just... Yeah. Incredible. I mean, amazing. Imagine, uh, you know, um, imagine that in the Australian context, not just becoming president under the age of 40 of a nuclear power, but but sh- but shattering the, the, uh, the old party's hold on the political system. Um, Buttigieg is, is showing similar yeah, kind of audacity mm. in a way. Um, but I think it's too 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 soon to put our hopes in him. So I like Macron. I like the fact that he he thinks big. He thinks about these big issues. Um, I would also say I wouldn't again at the risk of, of getting uh, mobbed on on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I have much more time for Boris Johnson than than um, the many people, and I think that um, I disagree with. Boris on Brexit completely, and I think Brexit was totally wrong-headed for the UK. But I think Brexit, I think Boris is more of a liberal, cosmopolitan leader than many people think. I think his instincts on immigration and questions like that are much more liberal than people think. And I think, I think he. Um, so I think, uh, so I think that's there's a glimmer of hope there. And just to, to offer a third leader, if I can. Um, for some years, I've I've had an eye on Keir Starmer, who's running for, who seems to be the front runner at the moment to run to, to lead the Labor Party in the UK. Um, Starmer is someone of real, who's had a who had a distinguished career as a prosecutor, um, someone who's a sort of fully formed human being with a hinterland. Um, very interesting guy, and I'll tell you if he could. Uh, I mean, to go from Corbyn to Starmer, that would be that would be a big battlefield promotion. So, fingers crossed. Okay, and so you've talked. You I mean you're clearly passionate about democracy, and someone believes in it heavily. How concerned are you about this notion of political warfare and of autocrats sort of, um, you know, dabbling in Western democracy and you know using uh, social media or, mm. or, or 
weaponizing institutions against uh, Western liberal democracies. I mean, how concerned are you about that advent? Because it's reasonably new, but it seems to be getting worse, not better. It is concerning, but but here's the good news story is that Australia has responded. I mean, the whole Australian system has responded to attempts by foreign interference, especially from the Chinese party state uh, in the last couple of years in a way that's very interesting. And, you know, people overseas often talk about Australia as the canary in the coal mine. But I say to them, you know, some canary. I mean, the problem with that is the canary has no agency, does it? It's just a bird in a cage and it either dies or it doesn't die. Whereas actually <laughs> what Australia has done is, is, is stood up for itself. And that's partly um, policy changes at a government level. It's partly the political class on both sides coming up with a sort of a, a new bipartisan approach. It's also the media. I mean... There are probably half a dozen journalists in Australia whom I won't embarrass by mentioning, but it's the scoops that they have that they have led, especially in the old Fairfax Press, actually, and in the ABC, not exclusively, but especially there, that have thrown light on some of the problems in the system. So if you ever thought that an individual can't make a difference um, in society, that's not true because those stories forced the political class to focus on it, first all of it to fo- forced all of us to focus on it. And now a lot of countries abroad are saying, okay, what has Australia done? Australia seems to have done a few things right here. And you start with transparency and throwing sunlight on what other countries are trying to do, how they're trying to get their hands in our in the stuff of our souls. Mm. Well I think you're absolutely correct about the, the press. I think, you know, we're all critical of the press and its role at times, but I think they've done an outstanding job in, in that context. Now you know, switching to China and this, the critical nature of the Chinese relationship uh, to Australia's future. But, yeah. I mean, how do you see Australia managing this relationship and, you know, is our relationship with the US central to this? Because a lot of people say we don't have to choose between our economic mm-hmm. trade relationship and our security relationship. But increasingly, those two countries are choosing, you know, mm-hmm. um, at least a strategic rivalry, if not shifting towards some kind of Cold War. What is our position within that? Yeah. Well, I think on China, I think we our policy is properly a mix of engaging with them, but also hedging. And it has to be a, an intelligent mix of those two. And you've got to work out when you engage and when you hedge. I think we should cooperate with China where our interests overlap. And sometimes our interests will require us to say yes to China, even when the United States says no to China. So I don't think we should look at China always, always through an alliance prism. Um, I think there are time, I think we should be ambitious when, when we see opportunities to pursue our interests. But I think when our interests diverge from China's interests, we have to be very tough minded and very clear and consistent about, about why we're doing something uh, we're, we're going in a different direction. And that's very hard to do, especially when your, your own politics is as fragile as ours. We're in a, you know, our relationship in, you know, we're sort of in, we're not in the freezer with China, but we're kind of in the bar fridge where they're not really, <laughs> they're not that happy with us. Um, and we, and that's fine. We've, we've stood up with, you know, we've um, stood up for ourselves, but they haven't, Beijing hasn't really put the weights on us in the way that it has put the weights on South Koreans and a couple of other countries. So it will be interesting to see how how we respond if they ever do. I think the other thing is to say that the US matters because 
like most Asian countries, we want a US engaged in the region because it helps to provide some balance to the to the force, if you like, to go back to the Star Wars metaphor. <laughs> um, and it's easier to maintain our freedom of movement and independence when there's at least two big states um, in the region. And the other thing is that I think is important for us to, to think about when we think about China is not to shrink Asia to the dimensions of China and not to forget that there are, all, there are a number of other big Asian countries, including Japan and South Korea and Indonesia and Vietnam and others. And um, it, it, we, we need to, to, to you know, not focus on China both positive, in positive and negative ways to the exclusion of those other countries. We need to thicken those countries and have a sort of a balanced Asia relationship and not too focused on China. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that I think is undercooked is our, clearly our relationship with India, certainly our yeah. relationship with Indonesia, Japan, South Korea. But do you think there's a case for deeper links between the democracies of the Asian and Southeast Asian region and working together not to, not necessarily as an, an overt counterweight to the Chinese Communist Party, but just as a way of promoting democracy in the region. Yes, I do. I, I think that it's totally legitimate for democracies to get together and to work out where their interests overlap and to, um, and, you know, if we believe in our system, we shouldn't be embarrassed about saying that. Um, I would also say, though, that there are some countries that are not democracies, but are not necessarily um, in the China camp, as it were. Um, and it's useful to for us also to thicken our links with those countries. So yes, I think we should be. We should be. I think India is a big opportunity for us. But I'd, I'd also like us to do more with a country like Vietnam, that's certainly not a democracy, but that has different interests from China's. And the more we can thicken those connections, the more the more we can complicate the region, the harder it is for any one state to sort of dominate the rest of us. And that's what all of us want. We, we all want the freedom to make our own way. You know, none of us want to live in another big state's shadow. I mean, that's a really interesting point. Speaking of big states in, in the shadow, I mean, what's your take on the Pacific and the way that there's been the Pacific step up, which is arguably... You know, Australia's been a little bit at the sleep of the wheel, given our importance in that region, but China's been exceptionally assertive in that area. I mean, how concerned are you about that in, in that particular context? I think we've got, um, we've got a lot of um, equities in, in the Pacific, and I don't think we should be... Uh, I don't think we should get jumpy um, about China. I do think it would be against our... It would be inimical to our interests if another... If a country like China were to establish a, a military base in the Pacific, and we need to be very nimble about about the, how other Pacific island about how Pacific island states are relating to Beijing, but let's not underestimate the the strength of our connection to the Pacific. And one of the product research products the institutes put out recently that I'm very proud of is the Pacific Aid Map, where we tracked all of the aid to the Pacific from all around from from all the donors around the world, including China. And one of the highlights from that from that uh, index, uh, from that map, I should say, is that Australia provides 45% of total aid to the Pacific. And if you add the Kiwis, it's 55%. But if you read the papers, you think China's sort of eating our lunch in the Pacific. But mm. actually, more than half of the aid comes from Australia and New Zealand. And we still have these very thick person 
ties to China. And most Pacific elites know that, sure, there's, there's, there's money to be had, there are opportun- commercial opportunities with China, but, but that in the end, Australia is a better long-term, um, a better long-term bet. And, and we, again, to go back to what we were discussing earlier, you know, we have to be confident in ourselves, confident in our history and confident in what we bring to these other states. Just circling back to uh, the United States and Trump in the context of, uh, you know, Pacific and Asia-Pacific politics, one of the things that is notable about the Trump presidency is how transactional in nature it is. Um, you know, how concerned should we be about the nature of the alliance, keeping the you know, given the isolationist tendencies of the Trump presidency, given the transactional nature, how concerned should we be about the formality of the Ensign's Alliance in that context? I mean, can we? is it bankable? Can we take it mm. to the bank or is it ultimately going to be another deal to be made or, or broken by, by Trump? That's a very, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, you'd have to say that the relationship between Trump, the Trump administration, the Morrison government is, is very strong, really. Um, so we're not at risk in the way, you know, in, we're, we're not sort of liable to, you know, we're not, the eye of Sauron is not on us. Mm. But having said that, the truth is that Mr. Trump doesn't believe in alliances and he's said that consistently for 30 years. And he, it's, it's hard to, let me put it this way, it's hard to think of a less reliable alliance partner if your country was in trouble and uh, someone who is less sort of disposed to risking American lives and American blood, spending American blood and treasure in defence of an, an ally on the other side of the world. Now, of course, the Ameri- you can't shrink the American system to the president, and there'd be in, in extremists, there'd be lots of people around the United around the president saying this is important. And the links are deeper than the, the president. Links are very deep, mm. and the deep state again. Thank thank goodness for the deep state um, and the deep states. But but I, it's it it has to be admitted that 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 I think, of course, you know, the world is like a um, you know the world is full of is every country there's like an abacus in the in the capital and they're constantly assessing other capitals in terms of reliability and intention and capability and all that and of course allies around the world are looking at the United States and looking at the president's instincts and it doesn't make us more confident that's true and you know the way one thing that's been um, very consistent about the Trump presidency has been his approach to the Chinese Communist Party particularly uh, the Chinese Communist Party under Xi. I mean, it's a very different beast, modern China to even the China of five, ten years ago. You know, do you think the world was naive about the rise of China and wasn't live to the changes under Xi's regime? Or have we been asleep at the wheel and say that, you know, the South China Sea, should we have been sterner there? You know, could, could, could some of the assertiveness we're seeing now have been dealt with by being a bit stronger earlier on? I mean, how do you see that? Well, I think that Obama, for example, could have been firmer with China, definitely. And I think Obama was sort of had unrealistic expectations. And I remember this because I was in Washington when he came into office. And and he really felt that the United States and China could form a group of two, a G2, and they could together solve all the, the, the problems. And I Which is kind of, he was an optimist he about was, these He things, was so. an optimist, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and but, but I think that was too optimistic and... So yes, I think I think we misread it, and a lot of analysts 
misread Xi Jinping in particular. A lot of analysts, most China analysts thought he would be a steady-as-you-go leader, not a transformational leader. Um, so I think that's true. The, you know, the question is now, how do, we, how do we deal with this new China under Xi Jinping, where more and more power is being concentrated in the person of the president, where the country has great strengths, as we see in, in, in military expenditure and, and uh, confidence and, and, uh, and so on, but also has great weaknesses, as we're seeing in the coronavirus. Um, it's, uh, you know, this, this is the big challenge for, for leaders, getting the mix of hard and soft, standing up, for, standing up where, where we feel that, that China is overstepping the appropriate bounds for a sovereign country, but on the other hand, not um, squeezing China and not acknowledging that, it, of course, it's a great power and it, it deserves certain prerogatives and it deserves respect. Um, how, the mix of hard and soft is is very difficult one to get. Um, and on Trump, we I don't really know what Trump's settling point on China is because He's very tough on China when it comes to trade, but I don't think he really cares about security issues when it comes to China. It's very hard to imagine Trump caring about half-submerged water features in the South China Sea. Yeah. So let's see where he comes down. To date, he's been tough on trade, but not on other... On, it's been tough on, on 5G, ones. though, on techno-nationalism, but arguably that's a trade thing that he sees it as, but... Well, there was that tweet, remember, when he kind of hinted that, you know, if, if Xi Jinping gave him a good trade deal, maybe Huawei could, could get <laughs> back in. So, you know, the, to go to your earlier question, the problem is everything is transactional for Mr. Trump. Everything is a deal waiting to be had. And so, I mean, what what would that mean for something like, say, Taiwan or Hong Kong? I mean, he was, he was reasonably firm on Hong Kong, but, I mean, do you think... Hong, sorry, Taiwan is as big a red line for the United States as it used to be under, under Trump. That's a very good question. Um, that's a very good question. I, 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 you know, I would defer to specialists in, on, on it because it's a, it's a, it's, there's so many different angles to it. But starting from first principles... Um, you know, notwithstanding the vibrancy of Taiwanese democracy and and the legitimacy, in my view, of, of, of Taiwan playing an important part in the role in the world, I think if if it came down to a sort of a crisis, and Mr. Trump had a three a.m. moment, I think he's much more attracted by the idea of doing deals with Xi Jinping, the leader of a giant superpower, than he is about defending a scrappy tiny democracy that's the sort of the from the first principles but of course as as you know the relationship between the republic of china the, the militaries of 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 um of taiwan and the united states are very deep as well so there's a lot and Cong it has a lot of support in congress in the media so it's a complicated question but i don't think trump's instincts play well for the taiwanese a sobering point uh, to to leave the formal part of our conversations yes. but we'll now switch to the real, the real meat of the uh, of the debate, the thing yeah. that everyone's been waiting for, is yes. um, you know barbecue at Michael's. Yes. Three yes. guests, uh, alive or dead, but they've got to be foreign. They can't be Aussies, I'm yes. sorry, so you can't have Scomo. But um, who and why? And well, who would you have and why? First of all, I like the fact that um, you you do it as a barbie because um, 
you know, everyone has who do you want to invite to a dinner party or whatever. And, <laughs> and Barbies are more fun than dinner parties anyway. It's true. It's more weird. Yeah. First of all, I would have to have FDR because um, I spent, you know, I spent years uh, writing about FDR, first of all, for my master's thesis, then my PhD, then a book. And when, you know, and when you write, you spend so long thinking about someone, you wonder always what would the guy be like? What would he actually, actually be like to, to meet? So that would answer that question for me. I would have a strong hypothesis, which would be that he would be great fun because he always mixed the drinks at, in the Oval <laughs> Office at about five o'clock. He'd mix the martinis and have everyone in for cocktail hour. Um, and he was just a charming personality, which is one of the reasons I wanted to write about him. In fact, Winston Churchill said of FDR that meeting him was like, meeting him for the first time was like opening your first bottle of champagne. Oh, well, that is a hell of a wrap. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, we're going to serve beer at our barbecue, but having someone who has, who has a bit of bubble, a bit of bubbly to his personality would be good. Secondly, I would probably invite um, Grace Kelly because I'm a big Hitchcock fan and I loved her. Uh, I mean, she was just, you know, I was, uh, you know, she, she, she was such a charming, interesting, intelligent figure with such a crazy sort of life story. Um, and I love that period of, of old Hollywood. I love Hitchcock movies and Billy Wilder movies and, and stuff like that. And thirdly, to round it out, um, because we'd need someone to to entertain us, I'd have Bruce Springsteen because boss. I'm a big, long-term uh, fan of the boss. Um, love his sort of uh, sentimental, um, blue-collar uh, view of American democracy. Love his, I love his love songs. Um, he's just such... He's such um, an authentic character that I think he would sort of ground this otherwise highfalutin barbecue. And I think he'd, you know, he'd be the kind of guy who'd be fun when you got a couple of beers into him. So that'd be my barbie. Or, or, or champagne, as it were. But that sounds fantastic. Look, Michael, thank you so much for coming Thanks, on the mate. show. It's been a fantastic chat and uh, good luck with everything. It's a lot of fun. Thanks. Cheers. Before you run off, if you could quickly jump onto iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and give the show a rating and review, it would be really beneficial. Ratings and reviews help lift the rankings of the show, make sure that algorithms are recognizing the show and showing it to other people and spreading the word. Hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.